Good morning, everyone. So great to be back here speaking at Lane Park Church. I haven't actually spoken here before uh, or been here before, but most good speakers start by saying that, so I thought, no, I'll give it a crack. Um, it has been such an incredible privilege hanging out with the young people uh, from this youth group over the weekend. It's actually reminded me how hard it is to be a teenager. Like I've done, yeah, I've done thousands of talks to teenagers, but not for a few years. For the last five years, my wife and I have been ministering to young adults, and uh, and we've got kids ourselves, but they're not teenagers. They're uh, well, one's five. I think we've got a photo of my wee girl Scarlett um, coming up, and she's five. We were in a Christmas production or something. I've got some excuse. So that's me on the left. Uh, and that's we Scarlett. At the moment, she wants to be a kitten when she grows up. And we've got another one here. One day she said to me, um, Daddy, I want, to, I want to ice skate with a penguin. I'm like, oh, I'll see what I can do. <laughs> so that's us ice skating. Our wee boy Jasper's nine. And he's a very clever cookie. And at the moment, he wants to, he wants to be the stop-go guy. He wants to have the stop-go sign. Um, although the other day he said, Matt, uh, Daddy, he said, uh, what if the green meant stop and the red meant go? So I'm thinking maybe he'll be a philosopher or something instead. <laughs> Amazing young man. But uh, yeah, honestly, hanging out and hearing some of the stories of the young people this weekend just kind of reminded me how tough it can be to be a teenager. And I'm wondering if you remember what it was like yourself. You do, yes. <laughs> I don't. I don't know about you. I, you know, because you're curious about the world and you, and you get in trouble, big trouble. This is part of your brain, the frontal lobe, that's not fully developed yet. So you you take these crazy risks and you're so curious. My friend Dean has got a classic story for this. One day he went home from school at lunchtime. Uh, he wasn't supposed to. His parents went home. He, he went inside and he got the keys to the car. He'd been watching his parents drive, and he thought he'd worked out how to do it. So he got the keys off the fridge, and he went out to the garage. And uh, he, he, he opened the garage door. He put the key in the, in the car. He did really well, actually, because uh, he was only 12 at the time. He managed to put the car in reverse, which was a, almost a miracle, because it was an old V-Dub Beetle, and they were really hard to get into reverse. He had to, like, lift. Does anyone know what I'm t- No. Yeah, really hard to get into reverse. But he did it, and uh, he even managed to do like, the clutch thing. and the, That's hard to do, put the foot on the clutch and the accelerator. And he did all, Technically, he did all the right stuff, but driving's not really about technique. It's more about finesse, maybe. There's an art to it. And so he gave it gas, but boy, did he give it gas. And he came out of the garage, all right. He came flying out of the garage smack into their tree. Now, does anyone remember where the engine is on an old Vita Beetle? In the boot. So he hasn't just damaged the car. He's completely written the car off. And being 12 years old, um, he got out of the car. He looked around. He made sure no one was looking. He thought to himself, it wasn't me. <laughs> they can't prove a thing. No one saw it. And so he went back into his house. He put, put the keys there. He, uh, he, he actually got a bit carried away. He thought, how am I going to get away with this? He, um, he pretty much ransacked his parents' house. He went back to school. And then after school, he went to a friend's house so that his parents got there first. 
This is all just going in his mind. How am I going to get out of trouble? How am I going to get out of trouble? So, uh, so when he finally made it home, his parents are standing outside, upset. Mum's mum's in tears. Dad's consoling her. And they saw Dean. They said, "Dean, you'll never guess what's happened. A gang has been in our house. They've crashed the car and they've stolen stuff and they pushed over the fridge and all this stuff." And Dean and Dean's standing there on his own driveway, going, <gasps> "No," <laughs> lying to their faces. Dean actually thought he'd got away with it. And he actually did for about two weeks. He knew he was in trouble when the police came and started doing fingerprints. Not pretty. I remember those days too, getting in trouble and trying to get out of it, being curious and not having the mental capacities to kind of work it all through. I remember too being uh, on Queen Street. I grew up in South Auckland and we used to go skateboarding, me and my mates, and one busy Friday night, we're in Queen Street. And if you know Auckland, if you know Queen Street, the top of it's very, very steep. And you would have to be an idiot to skateboard down there. But my, my mate, who was really good at skateboarding, decided he was going to do it. And, and all of the other friends took off. So I'm standing there with a decision to make. Do I follow them? Do I not? I didn't want to. I'd rather walk or take a bus or something. But I took off after them. After a few seconds, I was going too fast to stop. I could have jumped off my board, but I probably... I would have broken my legs. So I stayed on that board. And at the bottom of the steep bit, you can go and see it for yourself, there's a major intersection with Merrill Drive. When they went through that intersection, somehow the lights were green. When I got there, things had changed a little bit. And so the lights are red, and, and not only are the cars coming through the intersection, but there were cars stopped at the lights. And I don't know how I got through there. By the grace of God, I guess. And so I get through there, and I didn't go find my mates. I didn't go celebrate. I just sat down by myself in shock, I guess, just thinking, Matt, don't do that again. You just about killed yourself. You just about killed someone else. Being a teenager isn't that easy. The messages they're bombarded with by society are enhanced uh, so much. The social media, they are... Uh, completely surrounded by. And so this weekend at camp, we've been looking at some of society's messages about God and society's messages about them, about where their worth comes from. And we've been challenging that in light of Scripture, in light of the Bible. And it's, it's been a really fruitful time. You see, teenagers are going to rebel against something. I guess it's just in their DNA. The question is, what are they going to rebel against? Now, hopefully... They don't rebel against their parents or rebel against their church or rebel against the society, the the people in society who care most about them. Hopefully they rebel against something, but the thing they rebel against is the messages in society that, that, that don't, the part of society that doesn't care, that just want their money, that just want their attention, that just long to, to use and abuse them. And so if we can help young people rebel against that part of society, the messages that are bad for them, the the people that don't care, then we're doing a great thing. See, Jesus called us specifically to be part of his redemptive force on planet Earth. And if young people can get a grip, uh, a taste for that, man, it sets them up so, so, so well. And to that end, last night, uh, we stood together and we said the Lord's Prayer And in taking up, I guess, picking up where we left off, I'm going to invite you to do that as well. So if you're able, if you'd like to stand, and we're going to uh, say a version of the Lord's Prayer together. 
So how do we become uh, part of God's hands and feet on planet Earth? How do we become part of this redemptive force? Well, Jesus himself used a pretty amazing parable, an incredible story that was uh, so profound that it, it really rustled some feathers. And he does this in Luke chapter 10. He talks about the parable of the Good Samaritan, and the potency of this story is completely lost on us. See, we don't really understand the historical background. Most of us haven't studied that, but the Samaritans and the Jews were not friends. The Samaritans had actually historically, uh, there's evidence to say that the Samaritans had gone and dug up bones from Jewish graves, taken them into the Jewish temple, the Holy of Holies, and scattered the bones through. Now, I don't think we really have a paradigm for how offensive that is nowadays. It would be, maybe, if I, to put a modern spin on it, would be something like, imagine if the All Blacks were doing a hucker in Sydney or something, and then, and then the Australian Air Force just came in and blew them all up right there on live TV. Like, it would take a while for us as a nation to get over that. And we're still trying to get over that underarm bowl in 1976 in the cricket. So it would take a really, you know, I don't think we'd ever kind of forget that. And so in return, the Jews had actually hired um, uh, a Roman army, and a, a Roman set of troops to go into a Samaritan town and to slaughter them. They weren't on best speaking terms, the Samaritans and the Jews. And so he, in this story, the Samaritan is the hero, which is profound. And all the listeners, all the scribes, all the teachers of the law would have been uh, most outraged by this. If you don't know the story, let me, let me briefly recap. So a man is going from uh, Jerusalem down to Jericho when he fell amongst robbers. They beat him up, they took his stuff, and they left him half dead on the side of the road. A priest and a Levite come by. They see the man, they walk by on the other side of the road, but a Samaritan sees him. And in verse 33, it says the most beautiful thing. It says, his heart was filled with compassion. He was filled with compassion. You know how the story in the Bible, if you're reading through it, it says the parable of the Good Samaritan. Well, biblical scholars don't like that name. They never put it there. We don't really know who comes up with those little titles, but they don't like it. Biblical scholars argue that the story is not about the, the Samaritan's goodness. It's about, verse 33, it's about the compassion of the Samaritan. He stopped and his heart was filled with compassion. And then he went on to do great things. He went on, it, it goes on and on. The story goes to great ends. Jesus goes for many verses talking about the extravagant ways that the, that the Samaritan went and blessed him. It says he had bandages and bound them up his wounds. Well, a reader in the ancient world wouldn't have thought, oh, yeah, well, he was obviously carrying bandages with him. To them, they would have thought, oh, wow, he must have ripped his own clothing up to make bandages for this man. That's what, of what probably would have gone through their heads. The extravagant love this man was shown is not so much a parable about doing for others like we have taught it to be. It's more about verse 33. It's more about the man who let his heart be filled with compassion. What does that word mean? In its original form, it means this that his heart felt it. There was a visceral response in his body, in his being. He felt it. When was the last time 
that you were moved with compassion, that your heart was affected, that your body had a response to what was going on. Our Bible tells us that Jesus wept. And what's profound about the fact that Jesus wept is that Christians have believed for 2,000 years that Jesus was not only fully man, but was fully God. That his character, the character of Jesus, reveals to us God. And so we see in Jesus a compassionate God. And we know from the Old Testament that, uh, that God has compassion over all he has made. We know that in Genesis 6-6 that he grieves over uh, creating humanity. We know from the New Testament that the Holy Spirit can be grieved. And so it's no wonder that Jesus, in revealing who God is, we see him full of grief and compassion. We read back and we read about Jesus in the Old Testament in Isaiah, and we see that uh, he was acquainted with grief, that he was a man of loss and grief. Man, I grew up with a with the stories of Jesus being the winner, being the, the supreme, you know, all singing, all dancing God who, who never kind of, I don't know, lost any battles, never had to face disappointments. I guess it was the stories that were selected for me. But in this story and in many others, Jesus actually allows himself to feel the pain of the world. And I've always wanted to be like Jesus. I don't know about you, but I, ever since I just, I found out about this man, I've wanted to be like him. But I remember getting to my late teenage years and thinking, hang on, I want to be like Jesus, but when was the last time I cried? And it had been nearly a decade since I'd shed a tear. And I thought, man, here I am trying to be like Jesus. Here I am trying to be more like God. And yet God has compassion and God allows himself to be moved deeply. And so I started praying that prayer that many missionaries had prayed, Lord, break my heart for what breaks yours. I think we've got a problem at the moment and in, in in maybe in the church, maybe around that, that we, we know we're supposed to do stuff. We know that part of being like Christ and, and being a good Christian means we need to not just talk about God, but, but do stuff. Be involved in the muck of the world. We know that. But the problem is we don't have the heart that breaks first. So it's really behaviorism. It's really obligation. I'm doing it because I have to. I'm doing it because I should. I'm doing it because I'm told to, not because I need to, because my heart is bleeding for these people. There is so much pain in your life, around your life, in your community. I'm from Christchurch. I, I read stories about Upper Heart. I know what's going on. I can see the pain. Can you? Do you feel it? In America, they finished a 30-year study. One of these big Ivy League uh, universities did a 30-year study studying 14,000 college students over 30 years. And what they discovered is in the last 30 years, we have become 40% less compassionate do you know what that means? We've become 40% less like Jesus in 30 years. 40% less like Jesus. 40% less compassionate. We're inundated with stories of pain, and yet nowadays it's so easy to just keep clicking the button and get to a story that we want to read. To avoid 
the unpleasant emotion. We'd just rather not, huh? So when was the last time you cried? Well, that's the question <laughs> of one of my favorite comedians. So I've uh, talked so heavy for so long, I'd like to give you some light relief. Let's talk about crying. Now, there are some of you here, and um, not crying is not the problem. The problem is too much emotion. And maybe there'll be another sermon one day on that. But today's message is for those many of us in that, in that uh, state where we've become less compassionate, where we've built up walls in our heart that God desperately wants to break down by His Spirit, that He wants to soften our hearts. And maybe you're really involved in doing stuff for the kingdom. That's great. But for the longevity of that, to get ownership of that, and to actually demonstrate God's love, you don't just do, you feel. The big words, if you're after the big words of theology, is that we can't just have um, orthodoxy, which means right belief about God. We can't just have orthopraxy, which is doing the right stuff of God. We need orthopathos. We need to feel the way God feels. We need to be moved with compassion like Jesus did. And so I'm just wondering if you would open your hearts again. For those of you, not all of you, but for those of you who've, like me years ago, walled up that part of you because it hurts or something. My wife and I run this ministry called Soul Tour to Young Adults. And I just so remember a couple of years ago, a man, a young man was there and he shared with the group, he said, you know, I haven't cried for 20 years. He's only in his mid-20s. He said he had such a horrendously traumatic upbringing as a child. And he said, I haven't cried one tear about that upbringing. He said, I haven't talked to anyone about it. I haven't opened up about it. I haven't shared a tear. I try not to think about it. He said, it's like I've taken all of the pain of my childhood and I've thrown it behind this huge dam and I've just built up this huge dam and I will not let one tear out. Because if I do, he said, I believe that dam will break and I will never stop crying. That's how much pain I'm hiding. Well, it's no doubt. It's, it's no wonder that this man doesn't want to cry the tears of God. And so sometimes opening up means counseling. Sometimes it means talking about past hurts. Sometimes it, it means going through a season of grief. And grief is something we don't really understand so much nowadays. We've, I guess we, we, we only, it only occurs to us to grieve when we've lost someone, when someone in our families or one of our friends has passed away. But any disappointment or any loss in your life at all needs to be grieved. And so if you've refused to grieve or be sad, then that could be a really, it could be God's word to you this morning. So that you can soften your heart again. In the story in John eleven thirty five, what's happened is that Lazarus has died. And Lazarus's family, the woman and his family, have come to Jesus and they're telling Jesus how, how hurt they are, how sad they are. And this is when Jesus weeps. He weeps in other places. He weeps uh, perhaps, you know, for example, over Jerusalem. But in this story, he's so moved by the compassion or the, the, the grief of the woman he's talking to, the family he's talking to. 
And biblical scholars and theologians, they kind of argue, they disagree on this point, and they're not too sure. They throw ideas around. See, they're, they're not too sure whether he knows he's about to heal Lazarus and raise him from the dead and cries anyway, or whether he doesn't have that foreknowledge and whether his, his compassion actually spurs him to go and raise Lazarus. They're not really quite sure. But what we can be sure of is this, that Jesus wasn't hard-hearted. And if he's called you to be like himself, which he has, then that's a call to be soft-hearted, is it not? So, this morning, it's hard, but it's worth doing. We're going to get the band up, and all of us are going to do business with God. We're going to say, Lord, I want to be used by you. Lord, I want you to invade not just my mind and my thoughts, not just my hands and my feet and my behavior, but Lord, I'm inviting you into my heart again, into my emotions. And where I've walled it up and where I've decided to stay away from those in pain and situations that are sad, Lord, I'm open to being soft again. And I realize that that's not always going to be easy. But Lord, I trust that as I cry, I cry with you. I cry your tears. Lord, break my heart for what breaks yours. Perhaps some of you are brave enough to pray that prayer again. Perhaps it's been many years since you prayed it. And if you're not ready, then I'm not going to push you into it. God's not going to push you into it. But if you want longevity in ministry, then this is the way to go about it.